0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I locked myself in those stairs. That was fun You locked yourself in the stairs? Yeah, so like to come down to the recording studio I have to come down to the sixth floor from the seventh floor And the sixth floor elevator is locked So you have to take the stairs I don't have my keys today So I got myself in the stairwell With no way to get out of the stairwell Unless I wanted to go all the way back down the sixth floor, All the way down the six flights of stairs Back up the elevator to seven And then find a key that I could borrow To go back down to six So I had my laptop in my hand, and then I had my phone, and I was like, "Well, I need to ping Tom to come and let me in." And so then I, like, stupidly was like, "Oh, I guess I have to download Slack on my phone." I have this thing where I try not to keep work apps on my phone, and so I, I was like, in the middle of downloading Slack, and I was like, balancing my laptop (laughs) in my arm, and I was like, "Oh wait, I have a Slack machine right here under my arm." (laughs) First world problems, man. Too many, too many computing devices.
1: And not enough hands, apparently.
0: <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good. I had an idea for today. Uh, there's been a couple interesting articles floating around that I thought we could talk about and get our get your feelings. I'd like to get your feelings on some of them. Okay.
1: You want to start with mine? Yeah, go ahead. That one will be short. All right. Um, cut. we'll edit that question out, but <laughs> uh,
0: Tom's not editing that out. All right, carry on.
1: Yeah, there was a there was an article that I read recently that was thought
0: provoking. I guess
1: uh, it was Active Record is reinventing Sequel. Sequel being, I always. Say it that weird way, just because when you're actually talking about this library, it's hard to verbally say whether you're talking about the SQL language or the SQL ORM. So I call the o- the ORM Sequel. Right.
0: Spelled out like the movie Sequel.
1: Yes, exactly. Spelled like the movie, like like the word Sequel. Yeah. Anyway, and so basically this goes through. A cherry picking of features that was added to Active Record over the last however many years, and basically says, "Yeah, and see, nobody should be using Active Record because there's this kind of equivalent thing in SQL, and it was there X number of years beforehand." It was a really right. frustrating article to read because, like, number one, who had what feature first is a terrible metric to measure just about anything by, but it, it's also. Just sort of a, a bile-filled article. Like it doesn't make any meaningful point. What I'd love, what I, what I enjoy reading about, is the myriad problems with Active Record or why SQL is an excellent library to be using. If we had an article that was, here's how you do X in Active Record, here's how you do X in SQL, and here's why one is better than the other, that's a great article. This one, this one just felt like though it was writing off people's work because it was. Uh, in many of the cases, superficial only superficially similar to a feature that existed in another library,
0: right? And and just the fact that it exists in another library doesn't devalue the work that anybody did to bring it to this library, right? Or to bring it to Active right. Record.
1: Although interestingly, I um I did reach out to the guy individually after reading it, just saying like, hey, I feel like you maybe meant something other than how this might be interpreted, and how I'm interpreting it is a lot more venomous than I think you might have intended. It turns out no, the guy just sort of wanted to be a dick, and then went so far as to flat out accuse us of like actively looking to at SQL and trying to steal their APIs.
0: Well, I mean it, that's not what you were doing, but who cares? Right? Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't understand. No, that's um, the only
1: thing, right? It's like even if that was true, it, like you said, who cares? But you can't really argue that because then it's like, oh, oh, you're just defending yourself.
0: I guess, but like, I, I just don't. I don't see the like if something else if some other library has a good idea and you can bring it to your library and your users, like there's no there's no patent on software ideas. Well, there is not not an open source software, right? Maybe I don't know. I don't understand patents. I'm not a lawyer.
1: I, I, I feel like the uh, Oracle Java copyright uh, deal is potentially <laughs> relevant. I don't know. Anyway, the the whole thing was just sort of nonsense, but it it came across my feed a couple of times. And I feel like it just adds to sort of unnecessary bile to open to the open source community, which is already filled with enough of it. So I just wanted to mention it briefly.
0: Yeah, it just feels a little like this person is putting their thumb in people's eye just for the sake of like, well, I've been able to do these things or maybe not even these precise things. But these things with similar names for a really long time now. Uh, and that doesn't really help anybody (laughs) like yeah um, there's a lot of people using active record and all these things that were added to active record are a great boon for them so congratulations is SQL still better in some other ways probably tell us about them and maybe bring those to users of active record or maybe try and win over people who are using active record to use SQL if that's what you're after that's totally fine i read through this and i saw like you were the person who actually sent it to me I, i had not i had seen it come across and i hadn't read it yet but um in it your your name is actually there <laughs> for implementing the attributes API, which took you, you know, a year's worth of work. It wasn't like you were working on it every day for a year. Right. But still, like the manner in which it was mentioned was like, it took him a whole year to do this with Active Record, therefore you shouldn't use it. I don't understand. Like it it's maybe an indication of the state that Active Record was in, but that doesn't devalue the work or make it any somehow less than the feature that's implemented, the equivalent feature that's implemented mm-hmm. in SQL.
1: No, and in particular, actually, regardless of whatever state it was in a bit, you know, a big part of that chunk of time was spent refactoring to make it so that anything related to our attribute assignment or type coercion code bases isn't a pain to work with anymore.
0: Right, absolutely. So anyway, in general, I just felt like it kind of added to a little bit of like, a little bit of the air of negativity that doesn't need to exist. Like it's one thing and we do a lot of complaining on this podcast about open source libraries, but we try to keep it about our experiences with them. And also try and keep in mind that like these things probably do work really well for some people or that we're not always the intended audience for everything or that just, I don't know, trying to be nice, right? Well, keeping it constructive is important, I think. Right. But I do, I do wonder if there's a movement afoot. There's like a, there's certainly a groundswell of people who just feel that the negativity in open source is a, is a problem. And I'm wondering if it's starting to impact like, hmm, I don't know how much I want to get into this, but like. When I started working at ThoughtBot three years ago, it was kind of just assumed that like on Fridays, you worked on some sort of open source project. And it was never assigned. That's our investment time. You can do with it as you like, like something that's going to further your career or further something for ThoughtBot or whatever the case may be. But a lot of people were really into doing open source work. And it seems like that isn't as popular a thing now. Like People are instead investing in learning Elm or learning Rust or learning Haskell or something like that. Or there's like reading groups forming and that's all fantastic. Like that's really cool stuff to be doing on investment days. It lets people work directly with other people. But I feel like what happened to a lot of our open source work and it's still out there and still being used and still being maintained. But, you know, we're not producing as much new open source. I feel like anyway, for the size of the company that that, as we used to, and maybe that's because more of the problems are solved. But I do wonder if it's like some of it is the slog of maintaining something is not as attractive like Like I felt it myself with like I maintain clearance. I didn't start clearance I maintain and started scenic and that is like way more enjoyable I think for me because it's still young and I understand all of it and understand why every decision was made right Or I remember why most of the decisions were made anyway (laughs) Um, Whereas with clearance I have to everything I'm doing. I'm like is this a breaking change? What am I going to, like, okay, almost everything is a breaking change. Is this enough of a breaking change that it's considered a major API breaking change? Right. Um, that kind of thing. So there's some of that, but I do think there's also some of, like, the why would I want to get involved in that? Like, sometimes the questions that come in aren't the greatest, and you have to support that. And sometimes people are complaining about things, and you have to support that. Um, I don't get too much of the negativity, I feel like, because my libraries are much smaller than, say, Rails. Like, Active Record is a giant target, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of entitled people who want support immediately. Um, that type of thing, but I wonder if it's gonna start I mean, I mean we are seeing reports of it like Ryan big recently Just said he was giving up maintaining all of his open-source software to do other things, right And it's just signs of burnout, and I'm wondering if this if the negativity is contributing to that
1: Yeah, well, I mean I think if you talk to just about anybody who um, Spends a significant amount of time working on open source and you ask how they feel about it They'll like half of them at least will probably answer something along the lines of tired
0: yeah. And I certainly go in swings. It's nice to have a couple. It's nice for me to have like a couple smaller libraries that I can just kind of bounce between or like take a couple weeks off and be like, I'm going to go work on some Elm or something like that. Right. Like when we did the episode where both you and Lilo were unavailable and we just kind of did like a um, open mic with the Boston office on investment days. Nobody was like, I'm working on this open source project that we're putting out. It was like, I'm, I'm investing in Haskell. I'm investing in Elm. I'm investing in this cool JavaScript uh, library that Cole was working with that I can't remember right now. And that seems to be what most people are working on, which is maybe it's just it also could just be a cycle, right? It could be like people are interested in doing that and then we'll swing back and do more open source libraries or something. But when I read that and I could predict your reaction to it, because I had the same like the opening paragraphs were kind of like, again, I'm glad I'm glad that you reached out to the author and were like, am I reading more into this than I should be? Because I feel like that's a really kind of responsible thing to do that people don't usually do. But then to get a response back that's basically like no you're not I'm saying exactly what you think I'm saying Yeah, is a little unfortunate. I don't know. It's too bad Yeah,
1: I, I Guess I should be I should be flattered that I'm doing stuff that that's important enough that people are writing articles making insinuations About the quality of my code
0: right or that you're stealing it Yeah Um.
1: Anyway, yeah <laughs> moving on okay Sorry. The, no, no, it's good. I, like, I also just don't want to drive too much to it, but I, fe- I just felt like it's w- it was worth addressing.
0: Okay. So the other article that I want to talk about uh, that I came across and has been getting quite a bit of buzz on like Hacker News and Lobsters and places like that and we've been talking about it around the office, is this article by what uh, appears to be uh, somebody who only wants to be called Evie called Maybe We Could Tone Down the JavaScript, um, <laughs> which is... As soon as I saw it, I was like, I want to click on this and read all about this. Yeah. Um, but this person was having trouble with something about the browser on their machine. JavaScript was not executing quickly, I guess. They would wait, like, an insanely long time before it was executed on their machine. And that showed them all of the various places that are broken when you don't have JavaScript. Um, right. And they, you know, they, the, the article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, takes some pretty hard digs at Twitter in particular but it's not just Twitter, right? It's basically everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And the argument basically is that we had all this stuff that was HTML and (laughs) it works and it's accessible and it can be fast. It is fast unless you do something to make it not fast. And now we're putting on these layers of JavaScript in front of everything that A, require you to have a user agent that can execute JavaScript quickly, in which case like even some modern phones are not particularly fast Mm -hmm. uh, at this. And then, B, you have to have JavaScript enabled. And C, you need to replicate all of the accessibility features that are built into HTML and all this other stuff. Um, what did you think when you read through this?
1: It reminded me of a, um, I guess, argument for lack of a better word, that was, or a discussion that was happening at, at, uh, at Shopify on a pull request. We have this uh, gem called Stronger Parameters which basically adds types to strong parameters so you specifically say like this has to be an integer and it basically make, it moves a lot of validations forward and lets you and lets you serve up for, for especially for API requests serve up API errors before getting too deep into the code and there was a pull request that was to treat 1.0 as valid when the type was integer and um, many people were, were strongly opposed to this. The reason that this came up in the first place was that uh, numeric inputs um, right. like that the browsers have would submit .0. Mm-hmm. And so that would get rejected by, by this library. And the people who were opposed to it were saying, just follow, follow the spec, 1.0 is very different than 1, uh, and you can just as easily solve this problem with a layer of JavaScript. I remember finding it a little bit alarming that, like, we just jumped to that that to make it so, oh, now you can no longer submit forms without JavaScript, period.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, it is, like, kind of the temperature of the room is basically, like, we use JavaScript to make browsers behave the way we wish they behaved. Right. And instead of just living with the world where, you know, the way browsers do actually behave.
1: Well, it's one of those things where it's a paper cut, right? But if we're already... If we're already gushing blood on every on every page, maybe we should stop adding little paper cuts to it if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been doing more JavaScript front end work lately as part of like this elixir project. It's an elixir API with an ember uh, front end, and so I've been doing getting involved more in the ember stuff, and I'm just not it's not again we just talked about negativity right Um, I just find that it's not for me and I don't think it's a good I don't think it's a good fit for a default choice for a web stack like I feel like it might be a good fit for part of your website that needs some client side interactivity or maybe if you need like a fully offline web application then I think that could be a great fit but for the most part I'd still like to see people sticking with server rendered HTML um, and just finding ways to make that experience fast and pleasant for people Um, Be that you know fragment caching and turbo links or whatever on the rail side or using something that's faster on the back end be that rust or elixir or uh, Haskell or whatever the case may be
1: yeah, I'm I'm gonna take it Way beyond where people are gonna agree with me, but um remember you remember back when something being blue and underlined Was how you knew it was a link and links were always blue and underlined and you could always tell what was or wasn't a link yes I miss those days
0: (laughs) Have you seen motherwebsite.com? dot No, website.com? Tom. Sorry about the bleeping you just had to do. <laughs> <It's> basically, like <laughs> this is a website. Channel. It's unstyled HTML. The link. There's only one link on the page, but it is blue and underlined. You know. And I do think I think there's obviously a continuum here, but like maybe we've gone a little too far. We were talking about this on our coffee walk today with other developers that we took slightly before this. We're recording this podcast that like we've swung like we've got like now we're hooking into scrolling like you can't even scroll around on a page without like being disoriented about what it is you're actually scrolling like are you scrolling this element on the page are you scrolling your browser window does it matter I don't know Um, and there are places where I have seen like on marketing websites where I've seen very well thought out scroll effects that aren't disorienting and do add like a little bit of nicety to the page but I would say more often than not I see way too much of that kind of thing and the same would go for just needlessly making an Ember front end because, you know, that's what you wanted to do. I mean, that's fine, I guess, but it, that comes with a cost um, that isn't always immediately apparent when you start out. Like, you know, this article talks about um, like when you're when you're going to send a tweet and you click in what you think is a text area. And then all of a sudden the JavaScript executes because it was slow to download and execute for this person. And it deletes the entire tweet they had. Right. Um, just weird stuff like that and like the the it's not even an input area input area It's actually a content editable div of course for some right, reason. Well,
1: And then one of the ones that people really like to talk about on Twitter right is that undo just flat out is broken And they keep on trying to fix it And there ends up being a bazillion more edge cases that don't work every time they do it And the only reason that they're having to reinvent undo is because they can't use a text area <laughs>
0: right? So I again Trying not to border border on negativity too much But like I feel like we're not Thinking about all the stuff we're Throwing out when we throw out just when we try and Recreate html with javascript basically Right and you know then you've got your whole You've got your whole ad blocker stuff Layered on top right where Your ad blocker is going to block things that you're Counting on like if you have I don't Know how many websites are broken for me now because I Block trackers right and they Have some they built their javascript in such a way That if that tracker is not loaded before their Javascript executes Then it's an error and now the entire site is broken. It's a white page and I have to like either decide to reload without content blockers or just say forget it. And I'd say I'm about 50-50 on what I do, depends on how bad I want to see what's behind that white page. And I just think that everybody should basically be doing HTML web apps with server rendered backends and waiting until they have a problem to solve that needs more interactivity on the front end and needs offline support, things like that to then use the right tool for the job when that need arises rather than being like i'm going to build like i don't know uh let's (laughs) look look at the at the forums at at discourse right which Mm -hmm. is a forum i enjoy using discourse for the most part it's a little slow sometimes right because it's delivering a ton of javascript uh and sometimes a little wonky because of javascript stuff but does that need to be an ember front end i don't know like I'd love to talk to Sam about that at RailsConf this year and be like, you know, years on, now that you're, what are they, like three or four years into building uh, Discourse now? Mm-hmm. Like if you had to start again, would you still build an Ember? And I'd love to hear his, because he's got, you know, three or four years building the same product in it. Would he make the same decision today? I'd love to right. hear the answer to that. Crates.io
1: um, is an Ember app as well.
0: Interesting. Why?
1: uh that one actually probably just because it existed before any web framework in rust existed and they had to build a little micro- web micro framework just for that and uh, <laughs> it was and it was easier to not have to deal with a templating language would be my guess okay yeah so that one actually probably is justifiable
0: and then and and then you get into the situation where you've got you know never mind just a single website right so let's say you're on some you're on some web pages and you're command clicking on some links which may or may not work depending on how the javascript <laughs> framework is handling links and you're command clicking on links and you're opening up multiple tabs and you happen to have multiple tabs of these javascript applications running your fan is going to start running like you're going to start running out of memory it's ridiculous like nobody is paying any attention or very few people are paying any attention to what they're actually causing users computers to have to do <laughs> right and like I, I had the other day where I was like switching I had maybe 15 tabs open, which is a lot for me I try and keep it down to like under seven or eight but so I'm like using the sh- keyboard shortcuts to switch between tabs to find the one I want and it's like Hanging up on every third tab and I stopped and I looked at them and I was like, okay This is clearly a JavaScript front end app This is clearly a JavaScript front. every single one that was chewing up large amounts of my computer resourcing computer resources Was a JavaScript app. Yeah which makes sense, right? Otherwise, why would it be doing anything?
1: And what, I mean, one of the fun ones, right? Even when you don't have an internet connection, like, I, I just perpetually have Chrome open with several tabs. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I started noticing on planes was that if I made sure before I got on a plane to close out Chrome, my battery would last almost 30% longer.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> just do, sitting there doing things in the background, trying to contact the server, can't contact the server whatever that kind of thing
1: yeah or just what what like a lot of apps actually are doing work when they're idling just for just for weird render loops and stuff like that
0: Mm -hmm. there are certainly applications that I would probably reach for something like that with I just don't maybe I don't build them very often but like something like Trello strikes me as like kind of a real high interactivity thing that would be perhaps difficult to build with server rendered HTML in a a satisfying way Uh, but most people aren't building Trello (laughs) i'm working I've worked on apps where parts of the application felt like something where high interactivity would be needed or maybe even offline support would be useful, but not the whole thing um like the app I'm working on right now has an ember front end for users to interact with right and then there's also an ember front end that is the admin for their internal users mm-hmm. and it just see like every time I have to make changes in the in the elixir side for the API for the employee tool, which is what they call the, the admin tool. Every time I have to make changes there and then switch repos into this JavaScript thing and make similar changes to models on the JavaScript side, like I just, I wonder if people consider, why does our employee tool need to be an Ember front end? Right. It's basically, you know, active admin. <laughs> um, so.
1: Which, which, if I recall, active admin
0: has some pretty fancy JavaScript going on. <laughs> sure. It's basically administrate. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, It's very I mean it's what I mean by that is basically straight pretty straightforward like crud like here's a list of these objects from the Database they're related to these ones click on them to explore them You know update delete whatever you want to do to those and that seems like a pretty easy trade-off to make would be like Well, we don't need this to be an ember app. We can just do this entire thing in Phoenix, which does HTML just fine But you know for whatever reason that's not the way it went down.
1: Well, I don't know if if you feel this way, but I feel like it's been getting significantly worse in the last year, specifically. Like, I've been noticing a lot more sites just not working or taking way longer to load and being very JavaScript-heavy. And one of of the things I like to do whenever I go to a blog is just open up the the JavaScript console and see how many errors are being spat out.
0: Yeah, I do like to, like, I I like to take a look at that, too. (laughs) See, like, if they have debug output on or, like, what's going on.
1: Or, um... Flipping over to the network tab and being horrified at how many at how many requests, like ten minutes after the page is finished loading, they're still making. right. And there's been some weird ones too. like I've noticed this has been going on for a month or two. Uh, anytime I try and watch a YouTube video that's embedded in another site, Chrome will give me a little error uh, at bar at the top saying, "Rats, WebGL hit a snag." The video will still play just fine I guess it probably falls back to something It only happens when it's embedded in other sites But it's like, why is YouTube even using WebGL? This makes no sense to me
0: Yeah, it's a good question
1: (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, they're always going to need to use JavaScript But
0: Yes, I just want to go back I I think everybody should use JavaScript JavaScript's great I just want to go back to the progressive enhancement days Right you know, I said server-rendered HTML. I didn't mean no JavaScript at all. I meant whatever you're serving should be immediately usable to any client. And if you want to add nice touches from there, then that's great. And I guess that's the idea behind something like FastBoot. Am I? Do I have this right? Do you have Do you know about FastBoot and Ember?
1: Yeah, I don't think FastBoot is meant to necessarily work though until the Java. I mean, the JavaScript still has to load. It just It just renders the initial content on the server. So that crawlers can see it and um, you get faster time to paint.
0: Right. But isn't that also going to be isn't that also going to allow me to render a deep a deep link in a page and get back like a specific blog entry? If your blog is if your entire blog is an Ember app, I think I can I think the idea is basically, you know, just as a search engine, I can hit that deep link and get back the actual content I want
1: right yeah so that's that's the thing is that crawlers would get actual content back i mean deep linking has not been an issue for uh spas for a long time like <laughs> you can deep link with it with an spa that's not a problem
0: what you can't do very easily <laughs> this came up when one of the qa people at the place we're consulting with now brought uh, raised an issue is you know pages web pages have footers on the bottom that say like jobs about us contact us like whatever they have all those links in the footer typically mm-hmm. um So the issue was, go to the About Us page, scroll down to the bottom, click the About Us link. What would you expect to happen?
1: I would expect it to reload the
0: page. Yeah. In a JavaScript single-page web app. Oh, because it's navigating the same URL. It does nothing. (laughs) You're sitting there in the footer, right? And then you've got to start thinking, okay, uh, we started down the road of building a component that was like, well, when you click this link, what it should do is check the current route whatever that happens to be does it match the route that you're navigating to if so scroll to top otherwise and it's like we're just reinventing <laughs> what yep. a link would do like ah oh. and it just seemed like i i don't know ember particularly well like this is my first project where i am just kind of like interacting with it to fix things that i'm fixing that I'm create fix problems I'm creating by refactoring. Well, I guess they're not refactorings if they break things. But problems I'm creating or add new functionality or whatever that I'm ch- putting on the back end, making those corresponding changes on the front end. And I'm doing the best I can, but I do work with other people who know it reasonably well and are like, "Yeah, I've had this problem before. It's like, what's the solution?" Well, it's also,
1: one. it's also. I mean, it's not. That's not even. It. Well, a, yeah. Why are you using SPA to serve your about us page? <laughs> but then, B, uh, I would also even argue you shouldn't be using any web framework to serve those pages. Those should be static files that live separate from your web app. Yeah. If Your app is down. I still want to be able to see your about us page.
0: Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Those are definitely highly cacheable and can be served basically anywhere. Yeah. So that's a good point. Maybe we should just actually. Maybe we should just start serving some of this stuff from. I recently removed the b- whole browser pipeline from the Elixir app, but maybe we should just put it back in and be like, nope, we're, that's how we're going to serve some of this stuff.
1: Well, that's what I mean. You don't even need it to go through an Elixir pipeline. Like, presumably you've got an, uh, you've got an nginx uh, reverse proxy in front of it somewhere along the line. in that layer.
0: Yeah, I mean, but some app has to be responsible for delivering the like. I, I guess the problem at that point is some app has to be responsible for delivering the CSS, any like common javascript that's needed that's not the SPA. I don't think you would need that for an about us page, but who knows? Maybe you need maybe you need like mix panel or whatever the case may be.
1: Well, presumably that's just up on a CDN.
0: Right, but then you also have your layout, right? And you want to you want to share those between your actual app and this thing that's just your static HTML pages. So I feel like I maybe guess. maybe what you should do is have some sort of way, have some sort of system like one of your either your front end or your back end is responsible for creating those pages and then you basically build those pages once and cache the hell out of them at that point. Or just use HTML imports. Sure, yeah.
1: Like (laughs) HTML does have require now. It does? Yeah.
0: Stop. I'm looking this up. We're going to link to it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it was part of the the, uh, web components spec. I remember it's called HTML imports or HTML includes.
0: Introduction to HTML imports, web components. Wow. All right, we're going to link to this in the show notes. I'm not going to read it on the air.
1: At the same time, well, I, I get... All of what you're saying, and yeah, maybe you can use a static site generator get halfway there. At the end of the day, you can duplicate your layout.
0: No, the layout's not too heavy.
1: <laughs> like your layout doesn't change that often. It usually contains very minimal amounts of markup. Even almost all of the important stuff is is your styles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with you. Okay.
1: Anyway, we're 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 certainly ending up on, on quite a tangent there.
0: Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like really.
1: JavaScript is terrible.
0: <laughs> Remember, this was originally going to be a podcast where we talked a lot about JavaScript. And then I think yeah. both of us kind of got involved in it a little more. And we were like, oh, we didn't do that anymore. <laughs> well, Also,
1: neither of us particularly like JavaScript.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've gone through swings in my career where like I did an entire year and a half or so where I was just only working on a JavaScript app. That was it. And every once in a while, I jumped into the Java backend to make a change that I needed. But most of the time, I did the whole thing in JavaScript. And I kind of learned, you know, as you do, you learn the areas that you can use. You learn, the, you learn the areas that you shouldn't use. And you learn the framework that you are using, which at the time was uh, JavaScript MVC was actually the name of the framework. Um, <laughs> Very it's creative like, name. Well, it's kind of like JSON API, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you learned how to, how to use it and got used to its sharp edges and knew how to avoid them. You know, basically you read JavaScript the good parts and you were good to go. And I still feel like that's fine. Like I still feel totally comfortable writing the JavaScript I need to write when I'm sprinkling on some progressive enhancement. But I, I don't enjoy writing a JavaScript application.
1: No, and, that, and I mean, JavaScript's a very pragmatic language and it exists due to pragmatic decisions. And at the end of the day, there are worse languages for us to get stuck with if we have to get stuck with one of them.
0: Huh, really? PHP? <laughs> eh, I don't know. I'm led to believe that PHP isn't so bad these days. (laughs) Yeah, PHP 7 fixed everything. I haven't written it since PHP 4, so.
1: But yeah, it's frustrating that websites are completely, like, it's fine if you have some functionality that just requires JavaScript. Even if you could have done it progressively, at the end of the day, especially for non-critical functionality, if it requires JavaScript, eh, that's fine. But it is frustrating to see how many uh, websites are starting to become completely unusable without JavaScript for things that shouldn't require JavaScript to do, Mm -hmm. like web forms, like blogs. Yeah. And in particular, not just using JavaScript, but using overly complex forms of JavaScript, like WebGL for a video player, or Ember for static pages.
0: Right. Yeah, there's no reason for your entire site to depend on it. Like, we can do thing we don't have to like we can be excited about technology you can be super excited about ember and still employ it selectively yeah i guess that's (laughs) that's what i want people to take away i think it's a good takeaway okay anyway we'll link to this we'll link to that article it's a really good article of all the different problems that happen when you find yourself in for whatever reason on a connection that cannot execute javascript quickly yeah should read through it
1: i wonder if uh to kind of focus on something specifically. The whole why Twitter's tweet box is the way it is. If I had to fathom a guess, I would say they're jumping through all of these hoops because they want the autocomplete stuff for app mentions and hashtags. Would you agree?
0: Yeah. Otherwise, it is just a regular text area.
1: Yeah. So it makes me wonder, right? I think in a lot of these cases, people are doing all this stuff with really complex JavaScript to try and... um specifically handle some piece of functionality that not only can they not do it without JavaScript, but they can't uh, adapt existing APIs to do what they need to do without throwing out the entire damn thing and starting from scratch. I wonder if part of that is because, like, if you want to to work to add a feature to the JavaScript programming language or to the HTML spec, where do you even go? Like, where is your path to communicate feedback and what you need for the products that you're
0: building? Uh, TC39? That's well, a yeah.
1: I mean, I, I mean, of course, right? You, you, like, the, we all know that there's TC thirty nine, and there's presumably a path somewhere. But com- compared to if you want to add a feature to Ruby or Rails, right, or even sure. a Java, which is actually like if you're if you or, or .net, if you're looking Swift. at programming languages or Swift, <laughs> right, like all of those have pretty easily accessible paths,
0: right? Because all of those are one thing, right? JavaScript is a reference, like it's a standard. Supposedly, ECMAScript is a standard, right? Yeah, um, but
1: that doesn't mean that there can't still be a more formal and open process to propose changes, to, to make a request for comments uh, mm-hmm. on potential additions to the uh, ECMAScript sc- standard.
0: Yeah, sure, I guess. And I think the idea was originally like almost exactly like we're saying is like the idea that has been kind of trumpeted lately is more like let JavaScript lead the way for what we need from HTML. Right. Is that fair to say? Is that your impression as well? I'm not
1: even saying that like HTML needs to handle autocomplete out of the box. Mm. What I'm more thinking is it seems problematic to me that they can't still just use a text area. Right. Because actually a lot of this, right, so so as an example, uh, have you ever seen anybody actually use the HTML datetime input without, uh, for things other than mobile without completely eliminating it with JavaScript after the page loads?
0: Yeah, we use it here. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I Cause, mean, because you have no control over the styling. Sure, but you like, I mean, some clients complain about it and they say like, "Oh, well, this looks different on. It doesn't look like my site, or it looks different between these browsers, or whatever, what have you." Some will respond positively when you say, "Yes, but we didn't have to build that." Um, others will say, "Like, I want it to look like the way it's supposed to look," so then you clobber it.
1: But that's the same, that's the same thing, right? Right. But, and then you clobber it. It's not, and then you and then you have the hooks that you need to tweak it and do what you need to do with it. You have right. to, if you want to even slightly modify how it looks, you have to throw the entire damn thing out.
0: It's the same thing with HTML validations, right? HTML five has HTML five forms have validations that you can put on there, and you don't control the styling. You don't control which browsers support which validations. Like the date picker is a good example. Like Safari on the desktop, anyway. I think mobile might, but still does not support the date picker input. Yeah, I don't know if Firefox does. Anyway, Firefox absolutely is. Anyway, so yeah, Safari does not. I don't know. <laughs> like, Yeah, the things that are there, you you have no hooks into uh, messaging or for the errors or you have no hooks into styling for the errors or for the date picker or anything like that. On one of the internal tools we're using for like tracking our time and stuff like that, we did, there was like, <laughs> uh, Matt Jankowski was kind of managing that project for a long time and he resisted putting any JavaScript in at all. <laughs> so, there were areas that had to have a date picker where you would pick you know oh i'm gonna be out like i'm gonna be on time off from May first to May sixth or whatever the case may be and um the date has to be in a certain format, and the date time like there was there was a date picker that put it in the right format. But I'm using Safari because I don't trust Chrome anymore, and as my everyday browser, and I don't get a date picker, right? So then I had to like through trial and error be like, what format <laughs> is this date supposed to be? So then like the, re- the the response to the initial complaint there was like, all right, well, we'll put a placeholder in so you know the format it's supposed to be. But you know, I mean, you know the problem with placeholders as soon as you click into them, they're gone, right. uh, so you don't remember. But so finally, we added Modernizer that detects whether or not your browser supports the date picker input, and then. Uh, does a polyfill which is progressive enhancement, right? So we're gonna let the browser native widget handle it if your browser doesn't support it You can still input the text manually through the text field You just have to get the format right or we can help you get the format right with JavaScript hmm. so it seemed like a good case study in that anyway <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think it's unfortunate that modern that there are any modern browsers that still haven't fully implemented HTML 5
0: Yeah it's unfortunate. HTML. Someone can I use for can, can I use right now, which is a fantastic website for when you want to know whether or not you can use something. Date and time input types are still not supported by Firefox forty four or forty five or forty six or forty seven.
1: Well, date and time is different than date time. Date time being the one that is almost or no, I guess date is the most important one usually.
0: I don't know. Anyway, it's red. I'm not gonna tell that's you. That's interesting. Still not supported by Safari. Still not supported by Opera Mini. Whatever. IE11, not supported. Like, the only It thing is, is it supported actually, by Edge. It is supported by Edge. It is supported by Opera. It is supported by Chrome. It is supported by Android browser. Android browser. <laughs> and Chrome for Android. What is, where's mobile Safari? Oh, it's yellow on mobile now, Safari. Now, what's
1: interesting is if you scroll down a little bit more, HTML5 form features, which includes things like date pickers, Reports Mini. that all of these support. I guess. I guess it's probably it's as partial support. Yeah, problems. partial support for
0: everything except Opera Mini, which I think Opera <laughs> is Opera Mini dead. I don't. I don't, know. I don't
1: even know what Opera Mini is, honestly.
0: <laughs> Me either. Um, if you're using Opera Mini, let us know. Anyway, yeah. So nobody has nobody has all these HTML5 form features fully implemented, which is sad.
1: Yeah, because it's been 16 months since the
0: spec was finalized, and we're up to Chrome version 52. 52 versions and still no forms. <laughs> All right, anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, the conclusion is use Ember where it makes sense. Use HTML everywhere else. Use, JavaScript, any, use your JavaScript framework of your choice wherever you would like where it makes sense, but like, don't try, try and make the logical choice, please.
1: And if you can make something work without JavaScript, please make that thing work without JavaScript.
0: Yeah, do the semantically correct thing um, and then put the JavaScript on top of it.
1: By the way, when I opened up CanIUse.com, my fans started spinning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to blame something you had running in another tab. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm slash 56. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at Bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website.
1: Thanks for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next time. See ya.